Hello and welcome back to Discourse by the Saint, the student-led podcast where we encourage discussion minus the dissing. Each week, my guests and I will unravel the nuances of international current affairs issues from law to politics, medicine, the environment and everything in between. If all goes to plan, we'll all remain friends in the process and perhaps even change your minds. Last week, we steered well clear of politics, but today we're throwing ourselves right back in the deep end by delving into the murky waters of international elections. For listeners who aren't aware, 2024 is set to be the biggest year ever for elections globally. More than half the world's population will have the opportunity to vote, with elections due to take place in up to 76 countries. To some, this has been considered a victory for democracy, but others are questioning whether this very concept is being undermined by tyrannical anti-democratic parties who are being further empowered by ostensibly free but essentially rigged elections. Of the 71 countries covered by the Economist Intelligence Unit, only 43 will enjoy fully free and fair votes. Alongside the well-worn tactics of press and judicial control, opposition removal and constitutional change, we can also expect to see mis- and disinformation tactics like AI deepfakes, which have already played a role in the US primaries this year. As a result, 2024 is set to test the future of democracy to its limits, so there's plenty of fuel for discussion. Joining me to discuss some crucial upcoming election contests are Chris Morrow, Vice President of the St Andrews Econ Society and fourth year econ student. We also have Jean V. Podar, a first time guest, uh, who is the Education Officer for the Environmental Subcommittee and third year econ and geography student. I have no doubt they'll both raise some really interesting discussion points. So now is probably a good time to emphasise that as ever, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual speakers and do not reflect those held by the saint. Anyway, I think I've talked enough. So over to you, Chris. Before we get into the gritty election chat, do you have any controversial opinions that you'd like to get off your chest this morning? Yes, absolutely. And uh, Jean-Louis Rosie, very good to be with you here today. Uh, if I'm to come up with a controversial opinion, I was recently in Portugal where I had a golden bream that they serve with the eyeballs in it. And in my opinion, the eyeball is the tastiest part of the fish. It had a nice savoury umami flavour to it. Nice trigger warning for the vegans out there. Um, Jean-V, welcome to Discourse. Do you have any other hot takes to get the ball Hi, rolling? thank you for having me here. Um, my controversial opinion has more to do with what we're talking about today. And it is just that I don't think that democracy is going to survive the 21st century. I think we have a better chance of surviving the climate crisis than we do of having democracy around. Nice bit of cheer to get everyone's <laughs> morning going. I mean, yeah, fair enough. We'll get on to that. Um, awesome. Well, I think we'll start with your chosen subject, Chris, given that the outcome is probably the most certain of our three elections. Could you introduce our listeners to the Russian elections due this March? Yes, absolutely. If I can take our minds on a trip to Russia, I have news that will probably shock no one. That is that Vladimir Putin last month announced he will seek a fifth presidential term in the upcoming March elections. And uh, both so much and so little has changed since Putin's last election victory in 2018, which was supposed to be his final term, until he orchestrated constitutional reforms allowing him to remain in power for as long as until 2036. And since 2018, Russia has increased political repression. It's launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. It's annexed Luhansk, Donetsk, Kherson and Zaporizhia. It's conscripted 130,000 civilians and seen as many as 360,000 soldiers die at war. However, such as in 2018, the election will be dominated by Putin, just as in 2018 the election will be neither free nor fair, and just as in 2018 presidential election the most prominent member of the Russian opposition, Alexei Navalny, is barred from running. He remains convicted and imprisoned on politically motivated charges. 
And so Russia has many issues to face. However, in my opinion, almost none of them will stop Putin from being re-elected. So I just ask my uh, guests here if they think uh, the election is the biggest issue facing Russia, whether they think elections around the world will have a bigger impact, the re-election of figures such as Viktor Orban or Donald Trump uh, may be more influential in Russia's own election. Yeah, well, obviously Trump would like to think so. Um, <laughs> going around saying that he's going to end the war in Ukraine within a day uh, should he come to power. Um, but I guess, like as we've seen from Putin's like, defense strategy, he's not really influenced that much by what other leaders around him are doing or saying. I think he'd already decided that he was going to invade Ukraine. He was sort of bolstered by his 2014 success in Crimea. Um, and I, I guess almost depressingly, I think worldwide elections will wreak huge impacts internationally, but I'm not sure that they're going to bear much relation on the issue of Ukraine. Apart from, I think it's dangerous that lots of governments are going to be distracted from defence issues as they start to focus their efforts on campaigning strategies, um, especially in countries like the UK. I think, you know, there's almost a, a consensus, a cross-party consensus that the war should be ended in Ukraine. So it's not going to be a main talking point of the election. Uh, so that could have more of a bearing. But I don't know. What do you think, jean -Bee? I think Putin's election in Russia, as well as just elections world over um, this year, sort of we've seen a rise of the far right. We've seen a rise of fascist authoritarian leaders. And I think Putin's ele election and elections everywhere in the world is going to impact um, not just the war in Ukraine, but wars everywhere. I think one place where there could be more of an impact is in Africa, across Africa. There are lots of elections happening this year and Putin is already making quite a concerted effort to strengthen ties with what we would refer to as the global south, whether that's a tenable term anymore kind of is a point of discussion in its own right. Um, but yeah, definitely I could see uh, a 2024 in which Putin sort of extends his sympathy network amongst Africa. And it's really through these alliances that Putin has been able to avoid much of the Western sanctions uh, against his economy. Russia is supposed to grow by almost 5% in the next year, according to the IMF. Uh, so its economy is showing no signs of slowing down. It helps that Russia sits on the world's biggest oil rig. And so as far as hoping that Russia is going to run out of money for the war to stop, uh, I think that's uh, a hopeless thought. I think it's interesting that you bring up the Global South because... Um, Putin's efforts to increase his um, influence over the global south and Africa in particular, I think is going to increase tensions between Russia and China because China is sort of going for the same thing. So we may see increased levels of conflicts between two massive superpowers in coming years, which obviously all depends on the election this year. An issue that I found really interesting in relation to this story was voter apathy. I think it's really interesting when you look at Russia, where obviously they're living in such a politically controversial climate. And yet, according to polls and, you know, the evidence of campaigns or, um, you know, marches, there doesn't seem to be much in the way of opposition. Putin is actually reasonably popular in Russia, um, or at least if he's not popular, people are apathetic rather than actively voicing that opposition. So I just wonder whether you think you see a future where Putin could be toppled and whether he is just going to be ruling into perpetuity as he seems to be planning. Yeah, great question. In terms of opposition, it certainly helps that Alexei Navalny is in prison. Uh, there are other candidates on the ballot that are opposing uh, Putin. However, these are mostly just puppets put in place so Russia can keep up the pretense that it is a democracy. It still makes a little effort to try and pretend that. Uh, 
In terms of Putin after Russia, I think sometimes there's a lot of hope that if only Putin were to roll over, if Putin was gone, if Putin was to die, then this whole mess, you know, Russia would turn into a beacon of democracy. But if we look at the likely contenders that could uh, be successors to Putin, there's, you know, Sergei Shogun, who's the defense minister. There's Valery Gerasimov, the deputy defense minister. There's a Dmitry Medvedev, uh, the former Russian president. These are all figures that hold views that are, if not as extreme as Putin, then more extreme. And so if Putin were to go, I think he would only be replaced by an even more extreme candidate. Yeah, so obviously, Chris, you raised an important point. And I think from the West, uh, Western perspective, it's easy to see Putin as, you know, extremely radical and as the polar opposite to Western attributes. But uh, there are much more radical candidates like Leonard Slutsky. Um, and I know that his ultranationalism sort of makes Putin pale in comparison. And Putin almost prides himself on projecting this like moderate conservative Christian image and actually were he to be replaced with somebody who didn't prioritize that we could see an even more dangerous Russia emerging so perhaps we should in a way you know count our blessings that sounds wrong but that Putin is going to be re-elected um I suppose the grass is always greener and it's impossible to see any real alternative candidate who could offer what most of us might be looking for uh, yes, absolutely. Putin does definitely play the part of the defender of Russian values, and that plays very well domestically. The only issue that I think could topple Putin or cause domestic unrest is when we saw last year conscription for the war in Ukraine. We saw the biggest drop in Putin's uh, approval figures in 30 years in Russia. So if the war in Ukraine was to go much worse than it is and we had to conscript soldiers again, that could maybe be something that leads to civil unrest. Yeah, so on that point, I think it's quite a good segue into our next story, uh, because for a man who's been ruling for 23 years, uh, we're now going to turn to the South African elections, where the 30-year leadership of the African National Congress, or ANC, is beginning to come under question. Um, context here is a little tricky, given that South African politics is wrought with complexities. Essentially, the ANC came into power in 1994, forming the first post-apartheid government under Nelson Mandela. Since then, it hasn't all been plain sailing. In 2018, ANC President Zuma was forced to resign in the wake of heavy corruption charges, and his successor, Ramaphosa, has struggled to get the country back on track. Economically, South African growth has stagnated to less than 1% each year. The white minority controls the wealth, while a third of the country is unemployed, crime rates are soaring, and load shedding for up to six hours per day is the norm. Meanwhile, more than a third of voters are between the ages of 18 and 39, so it's likely that they'll be less swayed by the party's Mandela legacy. The ANC has historically been the biggest electoral machine of any party, and precedent dictates that they occupy an almost unchallengeable position. Nevertheless, and really interestingly, this is increasingly being tested. From a team of 14 Bloomberg analysts, only two forecast that the ANC would win more than 50% of the vote this year, and some predicted a vote share of just 40%. The alternatives to ANC rule are unclear. Their possible overhaul has inspired a proliferation of new parties across the political spectrum. The disgraced President Zuma has come out in support of the MK party, which grew out of the radical armed wing of the ANC. The populist economic freedom fighters, led by Malema, is predicted to capture up to 12.5% of the vote and could provide a desperate coalition partner for the ANC. This alliance has sparked fear among opposition parties, including the Democratic Alliance, or DA, led by John Steenhuisen. 
In a political move designed to prevent the ANC from coming to power or forming a coalition, this broadly centrist party has formed an eight-member multi-party charter, the first pre-election coalition since apartheid. A new constitutional ruling has also allowed for independents to stand for office. Of these, Zaki Akhmat, the HIV AIDS and anti-poverty campaigner, has a larger following and more credibility than many of the new political parties and could be a further coalition partner for the DA. However, the coalition between the DA and other parties failed in the province of Johannesburg in 2021, which doesn't bode particularly well for the future. Essentially then, South African politics has descended into something of a melting pot of political parties and alliances, making their political future unclear. What makes this contest particularly interesting is that South African post-apartheid democracy is finally coming under the microscope. Essentially, a democracy can only be consolidated when a governing party loses an election, accepts defeat and hands over power. The independence of the National Election Commission will be tested to its limits as it attempts to manage a highly complex and competitive contest. More importantly, it's unclear whether the ANC will even accept a defeat. While the MK armed branch of the ANC was disbanded in the 90s, Zuma's endorsement of the new MK party could foster unrest in areas where he's popular. Following the example of Zimbabwe and Algeria, the MK and more radical ANC sympathisers could resort to violence to maintain power. So it seems a bit unfair to turn to you, Kristen Janvi, for your thoughts on such a complex political scenario. But I guess we could start with the broad question of whether it's ever right for a single party to hold on to power for as long as the ANC has. That's a great question and a very tough one. And if the ANC isn't going to hold on to power or if they aren't going to go into coalition with the EFF, then the only other real opposition is Don John Steinhausen's DA party. And they do seem adamant that they are a government in waiting. Uh, however, that seems unlikely. They tend to pull nowhere more than about 10 to 20 percent uh, from what I've seen. Mm -hmm. And they do run some of the most uh, economically uh, successful boroughs in South Africa, in both Johannesburg and in Cape Town. Cape Town, I think. However, yeah. they are under a lot of criticism for being more representative of the elite minority white in South Africa. A lot of the leading black figures inside of that party have left. And so that will not play well for a country that is 80% black. I think just, yeah, the fact that um, there doesn't seem to be any strong opposition, given the fact that there isn't enough representation within the opposition, such as with the DA. And to me, that poses a massive problem when it comes to um, a multi-party system or when we talk about one single political party having all the power is that that is going to be the case unless we have opposition that is representative, that is willing to, that can become a populist sort of figure within um, a country. There's just no way for a party that's been in power to not be in power unless that happens. Yeah, well, as Chris alluded, South Africa is an extremely divided country. Mm -hmm. There's almost a completely different living experience between the elite, pre predominantly white minority and uh, the impoverished, predominantly black community. Um, they've tried to sort of rebrand South Africa as a rainbow nation. It seems to be their slogan that they've adopted. But whether it's feasible to ever apply a model of democracy um, to a country where divisions are so endemic and decisive it's quite interesting because I struggle to see how any single party could ever appeal to all of the needs and desires of the South African populace. Yeah, some very good points there. I find it almost ironic that they, uh, the ruling party tries to brand themselves as the rainbow nation when xenophobic attacks are really on the rise mm -hmm. in South Africa. 
which I think is a symptom of having the same party in power for 30 years. Uh, I think they've become complacent, the ANC. Uh, South Africa is riddled. Uh, I think a third of the country is unemployed. Crime rates have soared. Xenophobic attacks are through the roof. There's power cuts uh, for up to six hours a day daily. So I, I think having a party uh, in power for 30 years is definitely not healthy for South Africa. Yeah, in the same way that we argued that you know Putin's long-held rule was not particularly constructive to democracy. I think that the sign of a real democracy is, as I said, the ability for a party to be displaced from power and to accept that defeat and to sort of reformulate their strategy and respond to opponents. And when a country, a country's leader isn't being faced with that strong targeted opposition, I think it does allow for things to get out of hand, essentially. I would ask the question, how do you really come out of a state like that without strong opposition? What is, Who is responsible for getting a country like South Africa or Russia out of their current state? Is it civil society? Is it the press? Is it the international community? Who has answers? Yeah, well, I think independent think tanks, the likes of sort of Chatham House, would like to think that they play a role in that. But I don't know whether maybe... Um, you know, this model of a, a single democratic leader, which was essentially born in the West and then projected to other countries and emulated. I wonder whether it is actually sustainable and whether maybe it would be better to delegate power more to sort of provincial levels. I mean, provinces in South Africa are vastly disparate. Um, Cape Town and, you know, the Western Cape, are the sort of legislative uh, centres, economic powerhouses. Uh, you then have extremely rural areas where ideas differ considerably and living experience differ considerably. Um, so I don't know whether you think that could be a viable alternative. Great question. Uh, I do think it's a very sad issue, really, uh, South Africa, because I find no matter where I go, whether it's in St Andrews or whether it's my time that I've worked in the city and finance in London, I meet everywhere I go so many young, bright, ambitious South African people who have left because they don't feel they have a future there. A uh, good example is Sir Bradley Freed, former chairman of the Bank of England, started off his career in Arthur and Anderson in South Africa and then fled and worked in America and the UK. And I see that same story everywhere I go, and it's a vicious cycle because these people leave because they don't feel they have a future in South Africa and there's a huge brain drain. But then also because they leave, things don't tend to improve because they've taken their talents elsewhere. So you do worry if this cycle is going to condemn South Africa to another 30 years of increased poverty. Yeah, and you also get these, you know, pretty promising single figures emerging as potential candidates. I mentioned there Zaki Ahmad, um, and he's done a lot of work to sort of try to tackle poverty, try to tackle the issues of HIV and AIDS that are endemic. Um, but it's difficult for a single leader to take on a party that's so embedded, has such grassroots support as the ANC, um, who are in a large part sort of embedded in this legacy of Mandela and shrouded in this sort of protective film almost, um, which is uh, sort of absolving them of their political responsibilities. And I think the people responsible for holding um, political parties such as the ANC accountable are at the end of the day civil society members. They are they are civil society members, they are um, the free press, and I think at the moment the world is really lacking, not just South Africa or Russia or India, every single country is really lacking sort of a stronghold when it comes to civil society, when it comes to people standing up against um, oppression, against, you know, any threats to democracy. Yeah, and I think on that note, it's interesting, like, people love to sort of doomsay about the state of the UK, and obviously in the 
upcoming election predicted to be this autumn. People are saying that, you know, our political system is broken, that there's no hope for it. And actually, I suppose it's sort of a timely reminder that actually we should be grateful for the free press and the fact that our governments are coming under such intense scrutiny is really testament to the fact that we have these journalists who are free and able to criticise governments openly. Okay, well, this feels like a good time to take a bit of a breather. I know Jean-Louis is keen to talk about the Indian elections, but I think we could all do with a momentary break from the politics chat. So here's another unsolicited controversial opinion for you all. North Sea swimming is not a form of self-care. It is a sadistic display of self-torture and should not, on any circumstance, inspire your Lenten resolutions. Uh, that said, <laughs> Jean-Louis, over to you and the country that claims to be the world's largest democracy. Um. Elections, I think, are a way to keep the masses believing that they have some semblance of control over their political and economic freedom, but it's a lie. Um, elections are often said to be the seedbed of democracy, but when the rest of democracy is crumbling all around you, then elections cannot be free or fair. Uh, when talking about free or fair elections, it's important to be talking about the rise of a fascist Hindu regime and how uh, when it's protected by popular, populist support and when it's parading around as a democracy, um, it can say that they, it does free and fair elections. But um, what Modi has done essentially in the last few years is exacerbate the bigotry and communalism and the polarity that was left behind by the British. Um, I would say he engages in ethnic cleansing. Many would argue that I'm right. The BJP, they have birthed an inflamed religious and communal conflict across the country. Now, this is important because there's 200 million Muslims in, country, in a country of 1.4 billion people. And how can elections ever be free or fair or even be relevant if these 200 million people do not have the basic fundamental rights that are pro uh, promised in India's constitution? At the time of independence in 1947, the Indian leaders came together to constitute what we call a sovereign, socialist, secular, democratic republic in the preamble to our constitution. But we're losing that identity as a country, and if we're not able to live up to that identity, then elections can't be free or fair. Arundhati Roy, one of uh, the most vocal authors in India about the BJP, who essentially only talks against the BJP, says that the nation, the government, and its institutions have all been conflated with the ruling party, which has in turn been conflated with Modi. Um, in a country where the ruling party, it's very similar to what we were talking about earlier with South Africa and with Russia, in a country where the ruling party, a party is essentially the only source of authority, the only source of governance, um, it's not possible to have elections that are free or fair. Well, I agree with most of that. If I can be an economist for a second to come to Modi's defense on a few issues and play devil's advocate. Uh, if we cast our minds back to 2013, that was the year before Modi took power, India was identified by Morgan Stanley among a group of vulnerable emerging market economies. At the time, they were dubbed the Fragile Five for their reliance on foreign capital to fuel their economies, and in many cases, big current account deficits. However, 10 years later, under Modi, uh, India is firmly in the sights of international investors, consultants and trading partners as one of the world's fastest growing big economies. Uh, there's been big spending on roads, railways and other infrastructure under Modi and that's been a huge source of economic growth for India. However, I would add a rebuttal to that, that that no way excuses any of the social issues that have increased under Modi. Yeah, I think we're all in agreement that Modi is a very problematic leader. But again, to be devil's advocate for a moment, um, 
obviously he is a Hindu nationalist and Muslims have suffered immensely under his leadership. But I think it is worth looking at what's referred to in the media as other backward castes. I don't know if mm-hmm. is, that's a widely used term. Is it it, is, it yes. sounds so problematic to my mind. But anyway, I guess that's a, a different topic. Um, so Modi really appeals to this group of people who are effectively occupied the lowest strata of the caste system. Um, he captured 41% of the OBC vote and 48% of the EBC vote, which is the lowest strata of these strata in the 2019 elections. Um, this is largely due to um, a system of new welfareism, which he's instituted. Um, effectively, he's targeted a massive amount of resources into championing safer practices in these more rural areas, um, such as an end to open defecation. Um, And although 21% of rural households are still without toilets, this is a significant improvement on almost 60% in 2012. Uh, He's also promoted and provided gas cylinders for cooking rather than using sticks or cow dung as fuel. Um, These produce quite harmful chemicals, which have been related to up to 600,000 deaths per year from air pollution. Uh, He's brought villagers into the banking system with a digital payment system. And I think, you know, we can all agree that he is a problematic leader, but I guess on what metric can we judge these leaders? And at what point do you have to start, you know, balancing the pros and the cons? Obviously, under Modi, India has come up hugely on the world stage. Uh, They made their first appearance at the G20 summit this year. They had a moon landing. Um, And, you know, the West has no choice, really, but to negotiate with a power that is becoming so influential, uh, especially since they want to curb the Chinese sort of rise. So I suppose, what do you think? And to what extent do you think morals should be discarded for the sake of maybe wider geopolitical concerns? Here's the thing. I think in terms of politics on the global stage, in terms of world trade and economics, India is inevitably going to rise as a superpower. It may overtake a lot of the current superpowers in the world, But the fact of the matter is when development, especially in case of India, when the development is so concentrated to a few sects of society, when that development is only for a few sects of society to gain their popularist support, then it's not really development at all. Um, If you look at Muslims in India, there have been instances of increased violence against Muslims. There have been record low um, economic opportunities for Muslims and not just Muslims, for a lot of other minorities, right? Yes, um, the other backward classes, the OBCs, have seen a lot of growth and development under Modi. But that's only because the problems of the OBCs, as they're called very sadly, you're right, Um, The problems of the OBCs were all highlighted before the Modi government came into power. So it's kind of a brilliant political move to, um, you know, give more power to um, those that have been harmed by development. But I think the whole idea of Narendra Modi being a populist leader of Narendra Modi being a leader for the people is questionable because he's doing essentially what the British did. He's giving some power and some development and some economic welfare to a certain group of people to win their support, to then go on and use that power and that support to do wrong onto other groups of people within the country. Yeah, if I could pick up on two of the points that uh, Rosie started inside of this conversation. The first one was uh, Modi's 
popularity amongst the very poorest in the population inside of India. And I think Modi has made real improvements there. Since he came into power, uh, the percentage of the population living below the international poverty line, which is $2.15 a day, has shrunk dramatically. Also, the infant mortality rate in India has shrunk dramatically. However, for international standards, they're both still quite high. Uh, the percentage living in poverty is still over 10%. The infant mortality rate in India is still above Brazil, China and the UK. So while improvements have been made, there's still a very long way to go. Uh, on the second point that uh, Rosie raised is whether uh, Modi's economic record uh, can allow the Indian population to turn a blind eye uh, to some of uh, his more controversial social positions. Uh, and I would make the argument they go hand in hand and Modi's increasingly authoritarian social stances will harm India's economy. One of the big trends we see in investment at the moment is something called the China plus one policy. A lot of manufacturing is moving out of China because we want to de-risk from the political risks inside China. Uh, could they seize another place like Hong Kong? Could Taiwan be next? Will businesses have to pull out? So they're looking for safer political beacons to put their manufacturing. India has taken advantage of that because it still has a very young, very educated workforce. However, India is to take the same route as China and become more politically oppressive, and that could damage a lot of the inward investment that India has seen, thanks to it being a more open liberal economy compared to China. Yeah, and I think linked to that, it's also interesting how economists are increasingly turning away from using just GDP as a metric for economic success to looking to things like the happiness index um, as a potential projector for future growth. And as you say, I think you can't really completely divorce mm -hmm. economic policy, um, nationalist policy from, you know, the more welfare beneficial policies in society. Um, so, I, yeah, I think it will be very interesting to see how a third Modi term develops. There are some who are forecasting Jim Crow-like conditions for Muslims. Um, so, obviously, this is kind of no light matter and needs to be taken quite seriously. Um, I think it's very interesting that you say that if Modi's popularity declines on the world stage, that would impact Indian economics because so far world leaders, the likes of Biden and um, you know, anyone that has any power in the world today, they've all been quite supportive of Modi's leadership. They've all been quite involved with Narendra Modi, with his politics. And so I'm interested to see how that changes over the next few years. I think so far the international community has really just turned a blind eye to Modi. They haven't um, criticized him enough. They haven't questioned him enough. And I think some of that boils down to the sort of propaganda that the BJP government is constantly brewing. But um, in the grand scheme of things, I would like to see more accountability within the international community for what the BJP has done. Um, I'd also like to quickly turn to opposition. I think for any election to be free and fair, we'd all agree there needs to be good opposition. Currently, um, it's seeming quite inevitable that India comes out, uh, that the BJP comes out the winner of the 2024 election. Um, the only real opposition that they have is called the Indian National Developmental Inclusive Alliance, or India, which is um, a coalition of 28 parties, some of which are massive, the Trinamurti Congress, the INC, these are all massive, well-established political parties that have formed a coalition with 28 others. And it's really jarring to me that even with such a massive um you know, unison of different political parties across different political spectrums, they're not able to really be a strong enough opposition to the Modi government and to BJP. To me, that's seemingly very, very problematic to see that most 
of all political party and governance have risen up above uh, uh, to fight a certain um, political party and a political force, and they're still not able to really do that. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting that you talk about the sort of um, sort of agnostic stance almost from the West. I saw, which slightly surprised me, that Barack Obama had penned an article in Time magazine that was really actively celebrating Modi. And when I saw that, that sort of made me step back a little bit because obviously I, like many of our listeners, hold Barack Obama as a sort of symbol of worldwide democracy. And I think it links to something that um, Bronwyn Maddox, actually the uh, head of Chatham House, was talking about recently, which is whether the model of democracy as the West sees it is actually tenable. The West likes to see itself as a champion of human rights. But as we can see from their stance on the Gaza-Israel conflict, as well as many other things, um, they seem to apply human rights quite uh, in, in a quite ad hoc way, essentially when it suits their wider agenda. And I think that's definitely applicable here. I mean, obviously, it's within Western um, interests to promote greater trade relations with India as they try to move away, as Chris was saying, from relations with China. Um, so, yeah, I just think it's it's interesting reflection on Western democracy as much as it is on Indian democracy. Yeah, very interesting. I haven't read the Barack Obama article that praises Modi in India, but perhaps... I don't think it was published. I think maybe a wise editor decided that it wasn't a good idea. Okay, but if I was to put myself into the position where I was to try to praise Modi or India, perhaps we could make the argument, if you're comparing India more to its regional uh, neighbours rather than more Western countries. So we've talked about the violence in India. Uh, Although it's bad, if you compare it to its neighbours, Pakistan is firing missiles at Iran. Iran is firing them back. We have Saudi Arabia having operations in in Yemen. Sorry, We have Iran as operations in Yemen. We have the Israel-Gaza war. We can take a look at the way minorities are treated in Afghanistan or Iran. So perhaps based on uh, the rest of the region, India is actually doing quite well compared to how violent it is and how it treats its minorities. I think what's particularly concerned Western commentators who have come out against Modi is the clear relation that he seems to bear with former leaders like Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, Mao, and this kind of cult of personality that he's developed. He has complete control over the press. Essentially, nothing remotely negative comes out of the Indian press about him. Uh, He has control over the judiciary system. He's misused government resources and politicised them to his own agenda. Um, he's also come up with this rather um, self-aggrandizing slogan of Modi is India, India is Modi, which bears clear relation to some of the um, fascist slogans that we've heard in the past. He's also followed in their footsteps by naming a sports stadium after himself. And this was quite a, a funny little anecdote that I heard too, that he had his personal photograph printed on every COVID, COVID uh, vaccine certificate so that when people were travelling internationally, his face was projected on the world stage. Um, so I think that's really what people are concerned is that it seems to be central centralised on this cult of Modi as an individual leader. And as we've seen historically, those sorts of political movements tend to be more radical, tend to have bigger sways on the population um, and tend to be more polarising as well. Um, In terms of what you're saying, you're absolutely right. Modi just has all the signs of a fascist leader that most likely will just, you know, end up destroying the democracy that that has stood for 75 years now. Um, But I do think that the world, um, the West, whether that's Britain or America, is essentially failing um, the entire 
globe, the entire global population, if they're unable to do something about um, Modi and his rise in India, because India is home to almost 18% of the world's population and taking away democracy, taking away political and economic rights and freedoms from 18% of the world's population is very problematic to me. Um, going back to what Chris said about um, India's neighbors, I think, yeah, that's true. There's a lot of conflict, a lot of violent tension between lots of different actors around India. But the fact of the matter is that India parades itself is uh, as the largest democracy in the world. India signed 75 years ago a constitution that guarantees certain rights and certain freedoms to all of its citizens. And if we're not able to uphold those rights and freedoms, if we're really you know, just stripping away those rights, then we're no different from these other countries that neighbor us that do not um, identify as democratic republics, that do not identify as secular. And I do think that India is on the same path as everyone around it. It's on the same path of religious intolerance, of massive uh, violence and communalism just taking over the whole country. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard about the Ram Mandir conflict that's currently going on in India, where a temple, a Hindu religious temple, was built and was championed by the BJP and the Modi government atop a land that's historically been conflicted upon by Hindus and Muslims. That's just a very recent um, example of the very many religious tensions that I think in India will surpass any of its neighbors very soon. Yeah, so that's a pretty strong rebuttal, I suppose, to the argument I made for uh, how India compares to its neighbors. If I was now to make the opposite uh, argument, uh, I do agree that actually in some ways compared to its neighbors, India is doing a lot worse in terms of women's participation in the labor force. Uh, India does worse than Pakistan, it does worse than Sri Lanka, and it does worse than Bangladesh. And in fact, women account for a smaller percentage of the labour force than when Modi took power in 2014. I think India's labour force participation fell from about 25% in 2014 to it's now 24%, uh, and that's lower than all of its regional neighbours. And economists have said that getting more women into work could boost India's economy by as much as 1.5% per year, and that's according to the World Bank. However, safety issues and social pressures do prevent women from doing so. That's actually amazing. I never knew that stat about Indian women compared to Pakistan and Bangladesh. But I think that goes on to reiterate my point about um, this sort of Hindu nationalist vision that Modi has for India. And I think a part of that, as someone that stems from a Hindu background myself, I think a part of that vision is also the idea of a woman being a childbearer and a housewife. And I think that plays that sort of just misogynistic um, sentiment plays out very well into the rest of Modi's agenda. It kind of blends into the rest of what Modi is saying. Um, again, it's about taking away rights and freedoms, right? And he's done a brilliant job of doing that with the Muslim community. I wouldn't be surprised if he goes on to do that with the rest of the country as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is one of the biggest statistics that really reveals how bad things are in India for women. Over 75% of women are excluded from the workforce because it's not safe for them to do so. And it doesn't take an economics degree to figure out that if 75% of your women population could work and make an income, it would do great things for your economy. Yeah, well, I think it's safe to say that none of us will be heading to the 800 Ministry of Defence selfie points where Indian voters can now take pictures with a Modi cutout. Um, so that rather depressingly sort of takes us back to where we started with jean V's comment on the uncertain future of democracy. I think, as we've alluded, it's not only in Russia, South Africa and India where democratic processes are being eroded, but in Western so-called pillars of democracy as well. 
Um, so thank you so much for listening and bearing with us as we tackled the complexities of global democracy or undemocracy, depending on where you stand. On which note, I should probably reiterate that all views expressed in this episode were those of individual speakers and do not reflect the opinions of the saint. If we inspired strong opinions in you, we'd love to hear from you on the saint at podcast.com. We really hope you'll join us again in a couple of weeks' time. But while you're waiting, don't forget to pick up the next edition of The Saint on Thursday, the 22nd of February. Discourse was directed and hosted by me, Rosie Miller, produced by Natalie Olofsson and edited by Anna Lucia Chalmers. Our guests were Chris Morrow and Jean V. Podar.